Bible tells us that uh, he knows the number of hairs on our head. And he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He didn't say when an eagle falls to the ground. He said when a sparrow falls to the ground. God's way more attentive than you and I think he is. And he is more loving and compassionate and concerned than we sometimes give him credit for. God provides what you need in the moment that you need it. As we love him and as we obey him and as we trust him, he provides what we need. What do you do if what you need is courage? What do you do if what you need is the courage to face opposition or resistance to the gospel or if at some point you become persecuted for your faith? What do you do? How do you respond? Well, there's a lot of theories as to that, but I want us to look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 follows Acts chapter 3. Did y'all know that? I just want to make sure you got your Bibles. Acts 4 follows Acts 3. What happened in Acts 3? We talked about it last uh, two weeks ago. The lame man has been healed, and he is testifying to what God has done for them, for him. And Peter and John have said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Now a crowd begins to gather, and as this crowd begins to gather, Peter is taking advantage of the opportunity to share what Jesus can do in a person's life. But as he's there outside of Solomon's portico, he sees this crowd gathering, but he also sees that the guards are coming, the temple guards and the Sadducees. And uh, the reason they were called Sadducees is because they were sad. You see? <laughs> kind of like some Baptists I know. They just, you know, you look at them and they always look like they've been drinking lemon juice. And so the Sadducees hated this message because the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. And so now, with the resurrection of Christ, everything they believe is being challenged. So they show up. Let's just look in Acts chapter 4. In verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and Sadducees came up to them and being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed. Now you want to talk about a crowd gathering quick. Many believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. One miracle, one man's changed life, 5,000 people come to Christ. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the priestly descent. That's important to note because these are the religious leaders who were supposed to know it all. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, 
if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And I want you to look back in your notes, and if, if you've got your Bibles, you can underline this. In verse 7, they ask, in what name? In verse 10, he says, by the name of Jesus. And in verse 10, he says, by the name, second time. And then he says, he quotes from the Psalms. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. Uh, this past week, Terry and I were at the Cove with uh, uh, Walt Kaiser, who's a Ph.D. Old Testament scholar for 13 sessions on the book of Job. Uh, and in that book, there are four mentions of Messiah. There are four names used for the Messiah in the book of Job, which is the oldest book written in the Old Testament. He was a contemporary of Abraham. He would have known the laws of the patriarchs, and they would have known the truth. Now, here's one of the things he said, which I thought was fascinating. He said, you know, it all began with Adam and Eve. If you don't believe that, then you can't even believe the gospel. Because it began with Adam and Eve, and what did God do? God had fellowship with them in the garden. And so they knew God. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, tells us that the three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, were all involved in creation in the original Hebrew language. So you take that, then God provides a sacrifice. There's a shedding of blood to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. God revealed himself from Genesis all the way through to Job and on through to the prophets to say, there is a Messiah, there is one that will save, there is a coming king, he's a kinsman redeemer, he's an advocate, he's an intermediary, he's the one that stands on your behalf. And so they knew this. Job knew it. These people knew it. By the way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees knew it, but they didn't want to believe it. You can know a lot about God and miss him. You can know a lot of facts about God and miss him. But the Old Testament points all the way through to a Christ who would come, a Messiah, a Yeshia who would come and give his life a ransom for many. His life is sufficient for all to be saved. It is effective for those who believe. It is sufficient for all. God so loved the world. The blood of Christ, the death of Christ, is sufficient for 7 billion people in this world currently and for all those that have lived before. But it is only efficient and effective to those who believe. And so here we have Peter who has understood that Jesus is the Messiah, the one come from God, and he begins speaking and there's opposition. 
There will always be opposition to Jesus. It can come from religious people. It can come from politicians. It can come from your friends. It can come from within your family. There will always be opposition to truth because man will buy a lie quicker than he will buy truth. And so this opposition starts and these Sadducees and the chief priests, they're coming after them. What they do is they start with the leadership. They don't start with the church that has been gathered and these new believers. They figure if we got rid of Jesus, maybe we can get rid of Peter and John, and ultimately we get rid of the leadership and the whole movement folds. But they envied the power of these disciples. They envied the popularity of these disciples and of Jesus. And they questioned the right of these disciples to even teach. If you look at the phrase in verse 13, you're unlearned and ignorant men, meaning they were lay people, private citizens. They had not been trained in rabbinical training. They, they didn't have a seminary education. They had never taken a Bible course in a college. They were untrained, unlearned. How do you think you know all of this when you haven't been trained like we've been trained? The difference was those Pharisees and Sadducees had head knowledge. Peter and John had Jesus in their heart. And they started preaching on the resurrection, which the Sadducees just absolutely hated. Now, in their response, Peter and John give us seven keys to responding to persecution and opposition. And if you're sharing your faith, you're going to find persecution and you're going to find opposition. It may not take the form that it takes in third world countries and in countries where there's real serious persecution going on, but there will be persecution. And so... There are seven keys in chapter 4 in how we respond to persecution or when people just oppose us for sharing the gospel. First of all, be submissive, verses 5 and 7. Be submissive. When you and I are sharing our faith, we're not trying to pick a fight. We're trying to share truth. We're not out to pick a fight, we're, we, we, but we need to see opposition as an opportunity not as a wall that we can't get through. Opposition becomes an opportunity to explain more about the truth of who Jesus is. Secondly, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 8 says that Peter was filled with the Spirit when he talked. Now, don't go out and talk because you think you're smart and your mama said you've got a high IQ. You can be smart, but you need to be filled with the Spirit when you're witnessing because you're going to meet people who are resistant to the Spirit. Number three, be unapologetic, verses 8 through 12. Don't apologize. Hey, I'm really sorry, but, you know, I don't want to offend you, but, you know, Jesus, is, Jesus has changed my life. Hey, that's your story. And it may be offensive, but be unapologetic. Don't apologize for the fact that you realize you were a sinner in need of a Savior, and only Jesus could change your heart. You don't back up from that. Number four, be obedient to God, verses 14 through 22. He obeyed God rather than men. Be obedient to God. There may come a day in some of our lives that it will be against the law to share your faith in this country. If it is, you must obey God rather than men. If it costs you, you must obey God rather than men. The gospel is spreading in parts of the world in a miraculous way, but people being saved. The fastest growing movement of Christianity is right now in Muslim countries in the Middle East. 
right now in this moment. Now, I want to ask you a question. If it's the fastest growing movement of Christianity is in Muslim countries where to confess Christ means you lose your life, they will kill you. Why aren't we doing something about it where nobody's going to throw us in jail or slap us around or kill us for just telling people that God loves them? Why aren't we doing anything? And so let me ask you another question since we're close to the 4th of July. Why should God continue to give us freedoms when we ignore the freedoms that we've been given? Oh, we want to pray in school, but most people come to church don't pray. We want to have the Bible in school. Most people come to church and never open their Bible. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. The world is not opposing us because we're not doing anything that brings opposition. But we are to be unapologetic, to be obedient to God. Peter didn't call for the overthrow of Rome. He did not call for the destruction of the temple. He didn't protest the tax system. He preached Christ. Number five, find strength in the body of Christ. Where did they go after they were released? They went to church. They went to church. They didn't go to the beach. They went to church. They went to gather with other believers. Why? Because those other believers needed to hear from them firsthand what had happened so they would know what to do when it happened to them. So they gathered with the body of Christ. Number six, bless the Lord. Don't whine. Whining is the number one spiritual gift of some people. Don't whine. Verses 24 and 28. Oh, I tell you, I I can remember the first time my youth minister, because I was the only one that was old enough to do it, we're out witnessing on the streets, and he sends me into the beach club. The beach club was at the end of Beach Boulevard, and it was a bar, it was nasty, it was a rundown building, a hurricane took care of it, but uh, he said, Michael, go in there and and talk to somebody about Jesus. I mean, I'm a new Christian. Not... I know what the beach club was before, <laughs> but now I'm going into the beach club a different person. And so I went in the beach club and I started talking to this guy and he spit at me and he slapped me. And I went out and told my youth minister, I said, you can't believe what this guy did to me. He spit at me, slapped me. And James, in the kindest way he could, said, oh, shut up and quit whining. He said, they didn't nail you to a cross in there, did they? No. No, they didn't beat you with a whip, did they? No. What are you whining about? Good question. For a young believer, and it's a good question for somebody who's been a believer for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Bless the Lord, don't whine, and pray for greater boldness. You ought to write by that sickum. I mean, all, you know, if, if, if I'm going to get in trouble for witnessing, I just want to be bold enough to witness some more. If it's going to cost me something, I want to be bold enough to say more, to speak to more people, to look for greater opportunities. Now, why is good news so threatening? There are, some will say there are 200 million believers in the world today that are living with active opposition or persecution. Yet the church is exploding Now, if you just go back and look where we've been in this series in Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost, Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved. At the end of chapter 2, the Lord added to their numbers daily those who are being saved. 
that means if you just took that, took the 3,000 out, and took the 5,000 out, that they were having 365 professions of faith minimum, minimum a year if you just took the 3,000 and the 5,000 out. So what would happen if half of us in this room right now, forget the 11 o'clock crowd, I'll talk to them later, what would happen if half of us in this room right now asked God to use us to share Christ and to see somebody come to saving faith in Christ between now and December 31st? You think Albany would be any different? You think Southwest Georgia would be any different? You think lives would be any different? Your neighborhood would be any different? Your family would be any different? If by chance half of us, just half of us, led somebody to Christ the remainder of this year. God used the healing of this nobody, this lame man, as a catalyst for 5,000 to be saved. Who is it that God wants us to touch? Who is it on your path, in your daily pattern, in your walk of life that God wants you to touch? Is it somebody that has a locker next to you? Is it somebody in your neighborhood? Is it somebody you work with? Who is it that God has put you in their path and put them in your path and wants you to have a word of witness to them? You see, the very one we may think is irrelevant might be instrumental. The very one we may think is irrelevant might be instrumental. When I was at Roswell Street back before we had electricity and I was in youth ministry, uh, we had a 10 most wanted list and I put up a wanted poster, put a, like an image of an old bandit on it and it was a just said 10 most wanted. We had it in every youth Sunday school class and we listed the names of the 10 people in every grade that we wanted. Some of them had more names than 10. These are the 10 we wanted to be saved. <clears throat> now, this is what I got from some of my teachers. Well, what if they walk in and see their name on the wall? Well, first of all, they're not walking in right now. And secondly, if they see their name on the wall, you can simply say, you know what? I've been praying for you every week that God would open your heart to the love of Christ. We put those posters up. And in one week, at one of the high schools, one week, the starting quarterback, the starting center, the starting tight end, and the starting fullback all walked the aisle and made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And it revolutionized a whole campus because I said, go for the ones with influence. And if you can't find ones with influence that want to listen, then find the ones that nobody's talking to and talk to them. You know, there's somebody that feels neglected and unloved that we all know. And God gives us an opportunity to talk to them, to share with them the love of Jesus. They don't feel that they're loved. They don't feel that anybody cares. They don't think anybody knows that they even exist. And God puts us in their path. Look, look at this question in verse 7. By what power or in what name have you done this? They, they didn't deny this man had been healed. But they want to know what magic had they performed, what power had they used. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes to the Spirit for his strength to witness. Now maybe Peter remembered Matthew 10, verse 16. Turn over, if you will, to Matthew chapter 10 
in verse 16 because you need to see this because it deals with how we respond to persecution. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. Maybe Peter remembered these words of Jesus. Jesus had told them this was coming. Peter and John should not have looked at each other on this day and said, oh my goodness, Jesus never said that people would oppose us or that we would be persecuted. Jesus never told us this wasn't going to be anything but a cakewalk. Matthew 10 verse 16, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you get arrested for being a Christian, don't call the pastor and ask him what you ought to say. You should know what to say. You should know how to say it. And if you're filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, God will remind you of what you need to know in that moment to share your faith with whoever you're talking to. So Peter goes on the offensive, and he becomes a prosecuting attorney, and he tells him, you're guilty. God gives him courage, and he also gives him the ability to speak truth that brings conviction of sin. When Jesus was in the temple, they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus quoted the same scripture, Psalm 118, verse 22, that Peter quotes. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builder rejected? By the way, those who say you don't need the note Old Testament have just ripped out the heart of who Jesus is. If Jesus quoted the Old Testament, I'm going to keep quoting the Old Testament. Regardless of some think they've reached a point where they don't need the Old Testament, you need the Old Testament because it tells you who to look for. It tells you what the Messiah is going to do and what he's like. Here's one of the prophecies that Jesus is saying is fulfilled with me standing right here and what I'm saying out of my lips into your ears. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Peter says the same thing. By the way, uh, you can see that stone in Israel. It's down on first century ground. When they were building Herod's temple, there was a stone that was cut on about three sides, but unfinished. There was something in the stone that caused them to reject it. It could have been when Herod was killed, but the stone was rejected. It lays on the side of the road, and to go down that side, down the western wall side, on first century ground in Jerusalem, you had to go around that stone to get back on the path. That's why these disciples remembered it, because they had walked that path with Jesus a number of times and realized that there was a stone that was rejected. And probably Jesus said something about it as he walked by. He said, that stone right there, that one that the builders rejected, that's the chief cornerstone. That's about me. It's about me. And so they're saying to these religious leaders that think they had all the answers, you don't even have a clue. 
You've rejected the chief cornerstone of our faith. Our faith and our hope is in the one who would come. You got saved in the Old Testament the same way you got saved in the New Testament. You had to put faith that God and God alone could save you. Is there any other way? Well, the quick answer to that is no. But I'm not going to give you a quick answer. I'm going to give you a little longer one. Uh, Jesus is the only hope for man. I want you to just mark down, and if you don't get the statement, just get the reference, that the word is clear in several places all the way through the book of Acts that the message never changed. Now, here's why that's important. Because we are being pushed today to lighten up on the message that Jesus is the only way because everybody talks about spirituality, but you can have spirituality and not know God. And so not one time, with all the persecution that came, with everything that happened, not one time did they ever change the message through the decades that the book of Acts follows. In Pentecost chapter 2 and verse 23 In 24, Peter spoke about the death and resurrection of Christ. These are just continually on and on through the book of Acts. Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. The crowd in Jerusalem, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Before the Sadducees, chapter 4 and verse 10. Before the Sanhedrin, chapter 5 and verse 30. Witnessing to Cornelius, chapter 10, verses 39 and 40. And Paul before Agrippa, Chapter 26, verses 22 and 23. From Pentecost to the Gentiles. Every time they talked about the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. All through the book of Acts. You don't get to Acts and when it quits talking about Peter and picks up the emphasis on the Apostle Paul, all of a sudden the message changes. No. Whether they were talking to Jews or Gentiles, the message was the same. You come to God by faith in the resurrected Christ, that we have killed Christ by our sins, but God has raised him from the dead, and that he's coming back. This was the consistent message of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let me just give you a thought here. A willing person plus a loving God is the answer to man's need. A willing person plus a loving God is the answer to man's need. What do men need? They need willing people to share the gospel. And they need to know that there's a God who loves them. Jess Moody, I think he's with the Lord now, but he... This guy I, I love, Jess Moody, my favorite statement on pastoring, Jess Moody made. Jess said, pastoring a church is like trying to nail jello to a tree. Try it someday. You'll understand what he, what he meant. But he wrote a little book called Too Good to Keep. And I just want to read you a couple of little things he says in it. 
Jesus not only taught us of truth, but set the example for witnessing wherever he went. He witnessed in a boat and on a seaside. He witnessed in the temple and in homes. And then he lists all these places where he has shared the gospel. And he says, witnessing can be done by anybody, by an auto salesman, an airline pilot, a stewardess, a truck driver, an engineer, a violinist, a garbage collector, a tire repairman, the mayor's secretary, even a casual church member if they want to. And witnessing can be done by anyone. Jesus witnessed to Satan, to two fishermen, to an army captain, to demon-possessed people, to the disciples of John the Baptist, to a leper, to a father whose daughter had just died, to a woman in need of a hysterectomy, to the 12 disciples, to strict Sabbath observers, to a blind man, to farmers, to a prostitute, to a mother with a demon-possessed daughter, to a temple tax collector, to a small child, to a high priest, to a dying thief, and to the man he raised from the dead. And then he concludes it with this. There is no place where you cannot witness. There is no time when you cannot witness. There is no person to whom you cannot witness. And there is no Christian who cannot witness. Oh, what if they don't like me? You'll get over it. But if they go to hell... The blood's not on your hands. How can they hear without a preacher? Paul said in the book of Romans, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God is raising from the dead, we shall be saved. Confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not that he's just a ticket to heaven, but he's Lord of my life. And see, if he's Lord of my life... When he tells me I need to be sharing my faith, I can't say no, because he's not Lord. Because I am one under authority, and as one under authority, the Lord's authority, I'm to do what he tells me to do. Otherwise, I'm disobedient to the command of God. He didn't say do it if we're extroverts. Do it if we have the gift of evangelism. He just said do it. Just do it. I want to ask you a question. Who is going to hear the gospel from us this week because we've shared good news with somebody? Who's going to know? Not because you wore a t-shirt, not because you got a cross around your neck, but who's going to know because from your lips to their ears, they heard the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. If you are here this morning and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't know that you know that you know that you have a relationship with Christ, but you know that you need to trust Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You know that you need Jesus. You know that You're not going to get to heaven on your own. You're not going to get to heaven by baptism, by good works, by being a good person. You you can't get there on your own. You know that if you died today, you would die without Christ. I want you just with nobody looking around, I want you to just lift your hand and just hold it there for just a moment. I, I I know that I don't know. I know that I don't know. I don't know if I have a relationship 
with Christ or not. Anybody that needs to say, I don't know. But I want to settle it. I want to get it right today. Now, church family, listen to me. I, I want to be like a, like a father who corrects his children. But there are about 900 empty seats in this room that we could fill with lost people. But if we don't invite them, and if we don't build relationships with them, these seats will just remain empty. But God is looking for a church. And God is looking for a people that will see those that don't seem important and see those that think they're all important and say to both of them, Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the only hope. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. And when we leave this place, we're going to have an opportunity at a restaurant. We're going to have an opportunity on a ball field. We're going to have an opportunity at work, on vacation, wherever we might go, wherever we might be. We're going to have an opportunity to be bearers of good news. Will we take advantage of that? By the way, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. If you don't know how to do anything else, you can do this. You can ask anybody, anywhere, anytime, how can I pray for you? And I promise you they've got something. I've had opportunities with waiters and with waitresses when I've asked them how I can pray for them. And they say, well, I've got a sister, I've got a mom, I've got a dad, and they're having this going on then that leads me to say, I'll be glad to pray for them and I'm going to pray for them. But let me ask you, what do I need to pray for for you? And it opens the door to talk to somebody about Christ and the difference that Christ makes. We can and we should and we must because this world needs some good news. Father, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, stir our hearts for that neighbor that's next door to us, for that person that works in the same building with us, for that man or woman that waits on us in a restaurant, for the person at the drugstore or the grocery store people that we meet in our normal traffic patterns. Give us eyes to see this world the way you see it. Lost and in need of a Savior. Or I pray it in Jesus' name.